thank you all for coming to our second Sunday of Church History One. Glad you can all be here. Just want to make a quick announcement about some of the materials for the course. Uh, the two books that we've assigned for suggested reading for each week are over there available for purchase at the bookstore um, at a very reasonable price. That's uh, Henry Chadwick, The Early Church, and um, Jane D. Kelly, The Early Christian Doctrine. Those, both those books are available for purchase over there, and there are also copies in the church library on the balcony, second floor, that are available for use here. So, uh, unfortunately, you can't uh, pick them up. Can you pick them up? No. Uh, but the course materials are definitely available and uh, very reasonable. So today's topic is Roman attitudes towards Christians and Christian responses. And really what this comes down to, at least in the early period, is going to be uh, talking about persecution and the way that the earliest Christian communities related to the Roman state. And this topic will, for today, will take us from the early second century up into about the middle of it. And so that's going to be the time period that we're working with today. So first off, I want to know what comes to mind for you guys when you're thinking about persecution of early Christians? What images do you have? Um, either growing up in the church or just uh, things that you've heard in the various history classes and things like that. Lions. Lions. Lions are a big one. And what, uh, what about lions? Cuddly petting lions? Or, uh, <laughs> not hardly. Not hardly. Yeah, people being thrown to lions. Anything else? Getting burned at the stake. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, which actually uh, is a major part of church history, but about uh, part of the later um, chapter of church history. Romans were not big into burning people on stake. What's another thing that Romans did to get rid of people? Yes, so you'd be put into the gladiatorial ring. Um, there are there's not much evidence that I can think of about Christians being forced to fight other human gladiators, but the having people against beasts in, in the arena was fairly common. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so now we have some of the reasons why people were, why Christians were being uh, persecuted, and because they were not sacrificed to the emperor. So the the reasons that the Romans were persecuting Christians are some of them look very strange to us today, but it's going to help if we go through some of the accusations that Christ, that Romans commonly brought up against Christians, and we'll realize what the Christian community looked like in its earliest period um, vis-a-vis the culture in which it found itself. So the next point here on your handout, if you haven't got a handout yet, they're um, stacked them over there. We'll send a representative from the table and grab it. Um, there are five very common things that Roman charge, Romans charge Christians with, and we can go through them pretty quickly. And uh, some of them may be pretty obvious to you, but a couple of them may be a little bit strange. So number one, why would Christians be charged with being cannibals? Eat the body and drink the blood. Christians were very, you know, the, that language has been there the whole time, and sometimes Romans took it kind of literally because, well, they uh, Romans, at least not in this period, certainly had no tradition of human sacrifice, but there would be animal sacrifice, and body and blood in that case was very much real for them. And uh, they were willing to believe very heinous things about uh, any number of different sects in the Roman Empire, and one of them uh, that they accused Christians of was cannibalism for that reason. What about incest? Why would Christians be accused of incest? Yeah. Drinking one another with a holy kiss. 
Yep, so greeting one another with the holy kiss, that goes around quite a lot. And then uh, one other bit of terminology for Christian Jews, yeah. Well, we're all considered brothers and sisters. Yeah, so Christians call everyone else brother and sister, and if you're a Roman looking in on a particular congregation and everybody's calling everyone else brother and sister, kissing one another, and then some of these people are in fact married couples and families, they, uh, it's pretty easy to go the next step and accuse people of incest, which is common which is, uh, against Roman law just as much as it is against Jewish law. And here's a strange one. What about atheism? Why would Christians be called atheists? Christians of all people. Um, in what way the the Trinity? <coughs> but that would make them polytheists, right? If you're looking in from the outside. Yeah. What well, what would they? What would make the Romans think there's no God? Yeah, I hear that. Not believing like the Roman gods. Yeah. So none of the Roman gods. So none of the gods that the, the Romans are used to. So they deny all of those. Um, what else? Yeah, Dan. Not giving honor to uh, Caesar as a god. So yeah, that so Caesar would be considered one of the Roman gods, uh, and they're not giving any honor to him. No images of God. Yeah, no images, no pictures. You don't have any any icons of any of the gods, and you don't have any statues. Um, statues, very small statues in a home and a in an altar, were really the foundation of family Roman worship, um, and Christians didn't allow any of that, and so if Roman was looking in on a Christian meeting, they would hear talk about this Jesus guy, and Jesus was very much human, and no talk about any of the Roman gods, and no pictures of anyone, even of this God that they occasionally mentioned as being the father of Jesus, he has no, he has no images, and so therefore Christians must be atheists. Christian, the Roman religion, as uh, we talked about a little bit before, was very tactile, it uh, was very much based on things that you can see and touch and hear and in ceremony and Christians weren't having any of that. Mark, did they yeah. accuse, uh, Jews, uh, Jews were in a unique position because um, one thing that Jews had that Christians didn't was a temple and the Holy of Holies were Romans were allowed in. So Romans assumed that there must be a picture of the Jewish God in there. <laughs> There's got to be one in there, right? And uh, there's actually a story of the Roman general Pompey who conquered the um, province of Judea or the independent kingdom of Judea and made it a Roman province in the 60s BC, uh, decided that he was going to go into the Holy Holy and settle that mystery once and for all. And when he walked in, he was astounded to find that there was nothing in there and that it was just blank. Uh, so the, the Jews had a little bit of a special past, though, and this uh, ties in with number four. And so we'll come back to that in just a second. Why would Christians be accused of hating their ancestors? Uh, as you may know, something about the Romans were very much, they had a very, very high view of their ancestors. So the idea of the mos maiorum, the, the customs of the ancestors, was the basis of all Roman law, all Roman society, and all of their legitimacy as rulers of the world. Well, they were giving up all the Jewish heritage, and on top of that, they were accepting Gentiles, if you will, anybody and anybody, regardless of their background. Yeah, so giving up a heritage. So if they are, if Christians were converts from Judaism, then they're giving up their Jewish heritage. If Christians are converts from various Roman sects, then they're giving up those uh, aspects of their heritage. And so this comes back to the idea of the Romans that anything is new is something that is to be mistrusted at the very least and to be actively opposed very often. So Christianity was new. Christianity involved a definite break with all of um, a person's past religious 
traditions and um, family connections. And so uh, the, the Romans interpreted this, this not as people making an individualistic decision that was up to themselves, but in fact dropping out of the fabric of Roman society and um, even as we'll see in number five, becoming rebellious. So has anybody ever heard the word contumacy before? Besides Junior? Because I learned it for the first time when I was uh, reading about um, persecution of Christians, because this is the, the catchword for what happens when um, Christians are brought before Roman authorities. Because when Christians are brought before Roman authorities and the Romans say, okay, um, we kind of see now that we've questioned you that this cannibalism thing isn't really going on. That's kind of sensationalism. Incest, we realize that you, this couple over here that's married, you know, they weren't actually biological brother and sister. We, we can see that now. And you've told us enough about this one God that you do worship that we can't really quite say that you're an atheist. But you're causing trouble because you're just, you're not going with the flow. And so we're going to have to command you to offer incense up to the emperor and um, pray to him as a god and if you've been you know, a little bit too stubborn, we're going to have to tell you to curse Jesus Christ. And what would Christians say to that if they're going to remain Christians? No. Emphatic no. And that's the one thing that above all else Romans couldn't handle is that when you've been given a direct order, you need to follow it. And uh, when Romans were not willing to do that, that is when they were put in the position of facing either execution or giving it to the Roman magistrate's will. And so going back to the number four, the, the hatred of their ancestors, that's the one point where um, Jews got kind of a pass because their ancestors were also Jewish and long before the Romans ever conquered them. And so as long as they stayed within that tradition and didn't try and make too many proselytes, um, which Jews did do sometimes, um, with the evidence of that in the New Testament, they were often left alone, although the relationship of Jews to the Roman Empire is also a pretty stormy one. So those are the, 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 that hopefully present the kind of picture of what Christians look like in the position that they were in vis-a-vis -vis the Roman authorities. So of those five um, accusations that were being made against them, the first three were very sensationalized, and Christians could go pretty far talking with reasonable and educated Romans and explain that those three accusations were not something that were going to be a problem. The last two, however, were the points where Christian faith and Roman society came to a point where the, somebody had to give. And the, this is the result. This is where you have life or death situations coming out. So please turn with me to the third page we have up, which looks like this. This is a famous set of two documents from the earliest period of Christian history. These date from the first decade of the second century. They are correspondence between Pliny and Trajan. This is a man named Pliny the Younger, who was a governor of a Roman province, and Trajan, the Roman emperor, the actually the most powerful Roman emperor that ever existed. Um, he presided over the Roman Empire at the height of its territorial conquest and its monetary income, and at the point where Trajan was in charge, it really looked like Romans were in charge of the, the known world. Um, minus you know, a couple places off in the east that kept giving them trouble. Pliny the Younger uh, was governor of a territory called Bithynia. And if you look at the second page of your handout, there's a quick map right here. This is a map of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. 
and Bithynia is this area right here, directly across from modern Istanbul. So this just give you a sense of where Pliny um, is coming from. Roman, uh, Roman authorities would take men of very high wealth and standing in the Roman Empire, and they would go, they would come into political careers, going through the Senate. And one of the steps on their political career was to become a governor of a Roman province. And they would have one-year appointments, and they would be sent out from Rome, you know, halfway across the world, um, as far as they were concerned. And in this case, Pliny comes from a very distinguished family and uh, was given governorship of a rather important province. And he comes up against uh, the issue of Christians in his province and doesn't seem to quite know what to do with them. So could I get a volunteer to read the first section of this correspondence right here? It's a fairly long one, but you can get to it. Uh, the letter of Pliny to Trajan. Yeah, man. All right. It is my custom, Lord Emperor, to refer to you all questions whereof I am in doubt. Who can better guide me when I am at a stand or enlighten me if I am in ignorance? In investigations of Christians, I have never taken part. Hence, I do not know what is the crime usually punished or investigated or what allowances are made. So I have had no little uncertainty whether there is any distinction of age or whether the very weakest offenders are treated exactly like the stronger whether pardon is given to those who repent, or whether nobody has, who has ever been a Christian at all gains anything by having ceased to be such, whether punishment attaches to the mere name apart from secret crimes, or to the secret crimes connected with the name. Meantime, this is the course I have taken with those who were accused before me of Christians. I ask at their own lips whether they were Christian, and if they confess, I ask them a second and third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them for execution, for I held no question that whatever it was that they admitted, in any case, obstinacy and unbending perversity deserved to be punished. There were others of the like insanity, but as these were Roman citizens, I noted them down to be sent to Rome. Before long, as is often the case, the mere fact that the charge was taken notice of made it common, and several distinct cases arose. An unsigned paper was presented which gave the names of many. As for those who said that they neither were nor ever had been Christians, I thought it right to let them go since they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation, made supplication with incense and wine to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought into court for the purpose, together with the images of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, not one of which things, so it is said, those who are really Christians can be made to do. Others, who were named by the informer, said that they were Christians and then denied it, explaining that they had been, but it ceased to be such some three years ago, some a good many years, and a few as many as twenty. All these two not only worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, but cursed Christ. They maintained, however, that the amount of their fault or error had been this, uh, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and sing by turns a hymn to Christ as a god, and that they bound themselves with an oath, not for any crime, but not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, and not to deny a deposit when demanded. <coughs> After this was done, their custom was to depart and meet together again to take food, but ordinary and harmless food. And even this, they said, they had given up doing after the issue of my edict, by which, in accordance with their commands, I had forbidden the existence of clubs. On this, I considered it the more necessary to find out from two maidservants who were called deaconesses, and that by torment, how far this was true. 
but I discovered nothing else than a wicked and arrogant superstition. I therefore adjourned the case and hastened to consult you. The matter seems to me worth deliberation, especially on account of the number of those in danger. For many of all ages in every rank, and even of both sexes, are brought into present or future danger. The contagion of that superstition has penetrated not the cities only, but the villages and the country. Yet it seems possible to stop it and set it right. At any rate, it is certain enough that the almost deserted temples begin to be resorted to, that long disused ceremonies of religion are restored, and that fodder for victims finds a market, whereas buyers till now were very few. From this it may be easily supposed what a multitude of men can be reclaimed if there be a place of repentance. Thanks very much. Very well read. So, this letter right here contains a wealth of information about um, Roman interactions with early Christians. So, what are some of the things that stand out to you? Anything that there that is surprising, or maybe to confirm something you already knew? There were Sunday Christians then too. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday Christians then too. There you go. But it seemed obvious to him that anybody uh, who was unrepentant should just be executed. Yep. But that's not even. There's not even a question that if whatever it is that they're actually doing, secret crimes or no, if they don't repent of it and do what I tell them to do, execution is the logical course. Yeah, sure. It just it seems strange that uh, there almost seems to be a spirit of kind of disbelief on his part. Like he just can't believe that there are people that would that would endure this to death. Mm-hmm. He, he almost seems like he's, he's asking, what is up with these people? Yeah, they're, they're presenting a very strange case, and he can't see any reason why it should be such a big deal that they would actually choose execution over simply um, making a prayer to the emperor and offering some incense. Yeah. And last time, one of the things you mentioned was that, that, that we're really the idea of separation of church and state, that that wasn't something that was going on here. And so it's just it's so legal, like bringing them into the court and asking them to stay this thing, and then you'll you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And and taking that as okay, then they are fine. Like then, then we can trust them to be good Roman. Is is interesting in a way that I think now I think of. I don't. I mean, and probably it's hard to say. It's hard to say about people outside the church now, but there's much more of like it's a lifestyle. And I mean, I don't think now we'd say like, oh, you can like just say the or something, then mm-hmm. we, we can totally label you and judge you, and then you're okay or not okay. Yeah, so it's, it's much more, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, he doesn't, doesn't have the resources to go out and look and see how people are living their lives on a daily basis, yeah. and really this really doesn't consider it important enough. What he wants to make sure is that everyone in his province is loyal and will support Rome in its project of governing, and the thing is that Christians are dropping out of that project. They're challenging it implicitly, if not explicitly. And he wants to bring them back into line. And the way to bring them back into line, the way that's most obvious to show it, is to have people praying to the emperor. Yes? As a person in management, I wouldn't write a letter to the owner of the company with all these minor details, knowing you'd probably say handle it. So my first take on this is um, he must have been a real pickle as to what to do. 
and you didn't know what to do. And I mean, normally you wouldn't send the emperor about what kind of meals people are having. You know, there's much more important things to take care of. You sit on a really fun little part about this because um, so this is one section. This is one set of a letter by Pliny to Trajan in response, including uh, several dozen that Pliny. Um, made copies of and intended for publication later on in his life because you know, he was important enough to get letters directly from the emperor, right? But he does that consistently. He, he talks about all the minor little details and asks um, Trajan you know, a dozen different questions in one little letter and you'll see that Trajan tends to pick one or two of them and answer that and leave the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting family. So Pliny, this is Pliny the Younger. Um, Pliny the Elder was a famous naturalist um, who is important in church history because he has some interesting things to say about uh, the province of Judea at about the time that Jesus was alive. Um, and he died in AD 79. Does anybody have any idea what happened in AD 79 in central Italy? Vesuvius erupted. erupted. And Pliny, the famous naturalist, um, when everyone on earth was running away from Pompeii, said, I'm going to run toward it. <laughs> and that was the end of this man's father. So, um, otherwise, a very, very intelligent and thoughtful writer. I believe his son was watching it. Yeah, actually, it's Pliny the Younger who writes about it, and yeah. I, I make it a little bit silly, but um, it's kind of a moving um, little piece because he is writing about the death of his father. But um, this, <laughs> the something about the mindset that you you hit on there is um, very much in the the family of Pliny. Is that what he's saying? That 
Yeah, I think that's really important that you um, hit on that. And so he's, he recognizes that temple worship is in decline. Um, the revenues are down. People are not buying the meat that is sacrificed to idols. So one thing, as we remember from um, the book of Acts, is that Christians were not allowed to buy meat that was sacrificed to idols. So remember, when, um, when you sacrifice an animal on an altar in the ancient world, you would burn a small portion of it ceremonially, and the smoke would go up to heaven, and then that would be symbolic of the gods being able to consume it. But you wouldn't burn up the whole animal. In fact, you would use most of it, and you would resell it in the market. And so this was actually a major supply of meat in the ancient world, to, to buy uh, meat that had been sacrificed. So the whole animal is dedicated to the gods, but then human beings are actually allowed to consume them, the rest of it. Um, and the market for this has gone way down, which is a challenge to the economy of various cities in the... Um, in the Roman Empire, and we see back in the book of Acts, for example, that one of the things that got uh, some of the missionaries in trouble was disrupting the trade in images of idols, um, saying, for example, that you know images of Artemis um, in particular New York City are not uh, not to be sold, not to be bought by Christians, and not to, and people shouldn't be selling them. And the, the people who are making them, who are making these. Um, idols, whether or not they care particularly about the worship of that god, maybe they do, but it's their livelihood at stake. So there's, um, you're, you've been right to point out that there's um, not just a political aspect of it, but there's also an economic one. Um, Christians are disrupting the show in, in a couple of different ways that are important to Roman civility. Yeah? Wasn't there also at this time, um, how do I want to say this? wanted to maintain their control of the issue of slave population in Rome, and I, I think at one point the slaves outnumbered the citizens. And I, I don't know where Spartacus came into all this, but um, that's, I think that's why they wanted to make a firm grip on you know, control, no, no deviations whatsoever. Or yep. they're, they're afraid they're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. So you'll notice here uh, that one of the things that Pliny comments on is that Christians come from all walks of life, male, female, slave, and free. This translation here to maidservants is kind of an um, unfortunate translation. These are slaves. There are, there are no servants in the sense of sort of 19th century Britain or something like that, free people who are, who are in service. So you were either a, a free person working for yourself or you were a slave. And the slaves, you'll notice, are deaconesses. They actually have a position standing within the church, and this is something that would have bothered Romans, that slaves could become, slaves of office, slaves were actually becoming bishops later on in the century, and um, holding very important positions in the church, and this was another attack at the Roman social fabric. So first we have politics, are you, are you loyal to the emperor, or are you not? You have economics, are you participating in the way of life of our empire that keeps us all fed? And are you and cultural? Are you um, going to disrupt our social order? So that was a, a fear that you pointed out. This is a major rebellion led by Spartacus in the 70s BC, where uh, it looked like they might actually break off and form their own state and carve it out of the Roman Empire. And the um, Roman elite were very concerned about this. They didn't want slaves as a whole to rise up and start um, moving out of their positions. And Christians were allowing that to happen and even encouraging it. Population was pretty large. It was having a noticeable effect on temple worship and what they 
issue for this governor to be addressing, or do you think that's controversy? It looks like it's becoming an issue. So he knows he, he recognizes that trials of Christians have gone on before, but he hasn't participated in one yet. So, and this is though this is fairly early in his governorship, so it's not that he would have too many chances to do so ahead of time. But the, these trials are going on. He knows what they are, and he recognizes that the um, worship in the temples is down. The divine mood is down, um, and people are not paying attention to the gods in the way they used to. He doesn't say that it's only because of Christians, but he. But based on the content of the letter, you can infer that he thinks that that's a major cause. And so I would say the answer is that Christians are becoming more and more numerous. You mentioned, you know, they're not in the, just in the cities now, they're even in the countryside also. And this is becoming more and more serious of an issue for him. Although, within the, the, these couple dozen letters that I mentioned, this is the only one that refers to Christians, which is why we have it reprinted here. <coughs> yeah. Were there similar letters from other Roman governors? Not at this time period which is one of the reasons why we focus on this exchange right here, because it's such a, a wonderful window into the period, and it's so unique. So we don't have just you know dozens of other letters like this from the same time period, which would be wonderful if we did. Uh, can I have a volunteer to read the Emperor Trajan's response to Plane, a much shorter one? Italy and 
there's a point where he has um, a vision and he's told that the the world has people of the world have been given different gifts and you know he goes to talk about what um, has been given to some of the Eastern peoples and then to the Greeks have been given the gifts of learning and philosophy and the ability to uh, seek out the secrets of the natural world. The gift, the gift given to the Romans is the ability to rule and to rule justly and to rule well. And this becomes a major part of the ethos of the Roman Empire. That they believe that when they conquered someone and brought this, brought this new people under Roman law and into the economic and cultural life of their empire, that they were doing a good thing. They, they didn't just think that everyone else in the world was existed simply for their own exploitation and to be plundered and to make sure that the Romans richer and more rich, but to to actually civilize them. They thought that it was it was that kind of a project. And so you don't. It's, it's a good thing to, to highlight that all of those. That these are this is not the 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 opposition of the righteous Christians to the un mediated evil of Romans simply trying to exploit people for the sake of exploitation, but it's worldviews that are in inextricable conflict. Yeah. Okay. You could follow that up a little bit. I think um, something, the, the sympathy and the solidarity that I feel as I read this with the Christians is it's clear that what, what amazed me about Trajan's reaction is that what, what would what would expose them as Christians is their unwillingness to worship which means, you know, you think of the letters to, of, of John, the, the epistles of St. John, at the very end, and how that was such a prominent theme, that, that what makes a Christian a Christian is the idea of the universality of Christ, mm-hmm. or the exclusivity, if you will, of, of Christian worship to Christ. And so there is that sort of solidarity that we feel in a world that's very pluralistic today. As I read this and saw that reaction, I thought, you know, boy, things haven't changed a whole lot here, have they? That, you know, let them alone as long as they give homage to the gods of our worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as they, they do the one thing. To really claim <laughs> the universality of Christ as the one Lord and King, they're in big trouble. And that's, that's what gets us in trouble today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody cares that we're Christians, but the moment we stand opposed to another god, than worldviews, and we're in trouble. Yeah. So we have a lot of solidarity So would it be good to say the basic problem was a challenge to Roman mythology? Yes. Yeah, yeah. if you had to boil it down to one sentence, I think that would be it. Yeah, Joe. It's interesting, uh, this, this makes my mind raise, you're reflecting on a lot of the epistles, and it seems like, even in light of what Preston was saying, how you, you, know, you have Trajan here saying they're, they're not to be sought out, but you also have, on the other side, you have the apostles saying, make it your ambition to lead a quiet mm-hmm. life, not making a display. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like it's kind of putting it in context. Like, look, they're they're looking out for this. You know, they may not directly come after you, but let's not behave in such a way as to, to be flamboyant. And even Paul, you know, his instruction on eating any, you know, not questioning meat, sacrifice to idols, so on, to, to do that, it seems like, He's saying, let's not, even the apostles are saying, let's not, uh, let's not rock the boat unnecessarily. You know, let's, let's kind of assimilate where we can without violating our faith. Yeah, and that's an excellent uh, segue into the next section that we're doing, which is going to be uh, Christian reaction to this type of um, behavior on the part of the Roman authorities.
So the next section, back to your first page here, is uh, just a quick set of definitions that are going to help us navigate um, this time period right here. Does anybody know what the definition of the word martyr is? Yeah, Dan. Witness. The witness. And uh, what do witnesses do? Yep, they talk about what they've seen. So uh, martyr in the Greek context, which is number one there, is actually the same uh, legal term that we have today when we're talking about courtrooms. You have the judge, and you have the, the defense and the prosecution, and then you have <coughs> the defense and the prosecution calling witnesses, people who are going to give testimony about a specific action or set of events, and people are going to make judgments based on those testimonies. And in the Greek terminology, that didn't have anything to do with somebody necessarily dying for <laughs> what was going on, but um, simply talking, telling, telling true things, true recollections about what they've seen. But then in the Christian context, this becomes a technical term for Christians who are brought into the situation of being on trial and themselves being asked to bear witness. And the question becomes, to what are they bearing witness? And for Christians, the answer is they're bearing witness to who and what Christ is, when they're being asked, as we saw in, in uh, uh, Pliny's description of these court trials, that they're bearing witness to Christ instead of bearing witness to the power of the emperor. They're making the choice between one or the other, and they're saying that we are um, going to put our lives on the line and say that we believe in one Christ as Lord, and we cannot offer sacrifice and that kind of loyalty to any other power. And so it comes from the fact that they are bearing witness in the trial setting and that the common outcome of bearing that witness to Christ is the sentence of death. And so that is what the, where the Christian terminology um, takes over the Greek word and makes it its own, um, its own way of interpreting that word. Now just to bring this into context, um, that this is a little bit outside our time period, but I think it will be useful. Um, I've, when I taught this in class before, talking about early Islam, because um, Islam uses the same word. And some people think that, oh, that, you know, that therefore means that these are the same thing, or people also say, no, one group is totally unjustified in using this word. Um, it, it has to be either the Christian word or the Muslim word. So the question I, I bring, bring to you, bring back to you, uh, to what are you bearing witness? So if you are a Christian being killed for your faith, you are bearing witness to Christ. If you are a Muslim in this context, what, to what are you bearing witness? As far as you understand the idea of Islamic martyrdom. So you're, you're bearing witness to the teaching of Muhammad, and one of the teachings of Muhammad is that you must struggle on the behalf of faith. This is actually the word, the root of the word jihad, um, which is not um, itself the, the word for holy war. It comes in the same idea as martyrdom. It becomes a, a technical term on its own. But it, because holy war is itself a form of struggle. So the Quran talks about struggling with one's possessions, struggling with one's mind, struggling also with one's um, physical ability to wage war. And so in the Islamic context, witnessing to the truth of the Quran is involves aggression and it involves an aggression that um, can result in the death of other people and also the death of the person who is bringing that aggression forward. And 
certainly in the context of war, obviously we know that death can go one way or the other. So it would be my contention that that word um, can be used appropriately for both contexts, but you can see how it means something very different. You're witnessing something very different when you are willing to passively accept the loss of your own life in, in, in order to be a witness versus you are willing to take the life of another person in order to demonstrate your witness. So that's where that word, that, that word has a very complicated history, but it all comes back to the idea of seeing something and talking about it. And so then going to um, Joe's, Joe's question, what was the appropriate Christian response to living in this kind of situation? Should Christians go out and go out of their way, say, I am a Christian, and what are you going to do about it? Should they make all efforts short of actually cursing Christ and sacrificing the emperor to not be seen and to live and let live and simply do things in the of secrecy? Or should they make some kind of a compromise between the two? So what we're going to do here is look at three reactions to impending martyrdom in the early church, and I'd like to, to get your opinions on whose actions you think are the most appropriate. So the first one was the model of aggression. Ignatius of Antioch was a early Christian bishop from the city of Antioch, and if you look back to your map here, uh, this is actually a map specifically designed to show the journey that Ignatius of Antioch took um, in the last months of his life. So he was arrested in the city of Antioch, which is in modern Syria, which is just right here below um, the peninsula of Asia Minor, and he was arrested as a Christian bishop for the same kinds of things that Quinn is talking about. We don't have a record of his actual trial, but um, when he talks in his letters, it's you know, a very similar format. He was asked to renounce Christ. He was a very, as a bishop in a large city, he was a relatively high-profile character, um, and he stuck out and was arrested. And after he was arrested, it, in the ancient world, um, took quite a while to get you from one place to another. And clearly, Ignatius uh, was a Roman citizen, and so he was he appealed to the emperor and was going to be granted trial in Rome. And so they had to get him from Antioch to Rome, and they took him through Asia Minor, which was the natural way that he would travel from, um, <coughs> from the Middle East to Rome in that time period. And while he was doing it, he stopped off at several different major cities in that area because uh, it took about maybe six weeks. Um, it, it depends on if he was going over land, probably quite a bit longer. If he was sailing, maybe a little bit less to get from one place to the other. And in, uh, as he was stopping in those cities, he was under Roman guard, and yet he could, um, he was allowed to send out letters, and he was allowed to receive delegations from groups of Christians. And what we have is a set of seven letters that Ignatius wrote to these Christian communities uh, to encourage them to give some amount of teaching and to explain what's going on um, in his situation to, and to write thank yous because these Christian delegations would bring him food, for example, because the Romans um, were not, not known for providing particularly well for their captives, even when they hadn't yet been convicted of anything. And so um, he, we have a very detailed snapshot of this time period of what the Christian churches looked at in this time, uh, looked at in this, looked like in this area. And we also have uh, a fairly detailed description of Ignatius' own, own view of his impending martyrdom. 
one of the things that he says is he relies on his authority as someone who is going to be martyred even more heavily than he relies on his position as an elected bishop of his community. He thinks that the fact that he has already bore, borne witness to Christ and that he's going to be killed for it gives him a spiritual authority to talk to these people um, in a way that even, even more so than his office. And another thing that he says in one letter to the Christian community at, the, at Rome is he says, don't use your influence there. I know that some of you in this community here at Rome are powerful and have influence in the government. Don't use it on my behalf to get my case dropped. I want to become a martyr and I want my case to go through um, as it's already planned to go through. And so if you can um, look just above this map right here, I have a quick quote that gives you some sense of the, um, of the power of his belief um, in what he's doing and the, the emotional content that he, has, that he has invested in this. So could somebody read um, this quick quote right here in, a, in an appropriately impassioned voice, maybe? <laughs> Volunteers? On fire, cross, battling wild beasts, branching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. So for Ignatius, the, the pains and torments are in a sense a positive thing. And they're something that he has gone out of his way to to seek. I mean, it's not entirely, we don't exactly know what happened with his original capture. If he you know, went up and, you know, walked to the magistrate's house and said, hey, I'm a Christian, what are you going to do about it? Or if it was, you know, a little bit more um, a case of him being sought out. But once he had initially been um, condemned for this, he was very much on board and very aggressive about it. Uh, a second model is somebody I put down here is Eusebius of Caesarea. He is the first church historian, and he's a little bit outside of our period, but I thought he would be useful because uh, for illustrating this particular case. And I put him under the rubric of timidity. Uh, Eusebius was bishop of Caesarea, and in the last and greatest persecution, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks, under the emperor Diocletian in the late uh, third and early fourth century, Eusebius was uh, fled from Caesarea to Tyre, which is a city in modern Damascus, uh, excuse me, in modern um, Lebanon the north of the province of Palestine, and then fled from there to Egypt when the authorities kept following after him. And he was accused by some of his contemporaries of being too reluctant to become a martyr and hold, standing too much on his office using church funds to get away. And in Eusebius' defense, he was in fact imprisoned in Egypt and was there for several months before persecution was ended in that particular province. So he didn't get away entirely. He's not somebody who um, decided to curse Christ and offer sacrifice to the emperor, but there was a sense, at least among his contemporaries, that he was maybe a little bit too eager to get away. So that would be the opposite model from the aggressive model of the nation of Antioch, would be Eusebius of Caesarea. And a third way, maybe a via media, maybe not, would be Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp is actually one of the bishops of to whom Ignatius wrote one of his letters. Um, so there's actually a connection right there. And Smyrna is another one of these cities, um, very much right on the coast of modern Turkey. Um, it's actually the modern city of Ismir. And Polycarp was 
about 90 years old at the time uh, when the authorities came after him. He has a connection with the earliest church, either with the Apostle John or the Elder John, the author of the um, Johannine Epistles. It's unclear exactly who he's talking about. But he is somebody that, um, even though he wasn't, wasn't martyred until sometime in the middle of the second century, is a direct living link back to people who knew Jesus Christ. And we have one of his letters, and we also have a martyrdom, a story of how he was captured and killed, uh, written shortly after his death by one of uh, his church members. And if somebody could read that quick quotation, which is underneath your map on page two, we'll get a little bit of a sense about what Polycarp's uh, attitude toward martyrdom was. Ray, would you mind reading? Sure. For Polycarp waited to be betrayed, just as the Lord did, to the end, that we might also be imitators of him, not looking only to that which concerns ourselves, but also to that which concerns our neighbors. So Polycarp also hid, just like um, you see this with Caesarea did. He, people in his congregation moved him from safe house to safe house in the immediate area of Smyrna. But he didn't flee the province. He didn't go particularly far away. Part of his excuse was that he's like, I'm, I'm too old. I don't know if I would survive the journey. And he wanted also to continue ministering to his flock, because um, he was the bishop over them, um, as long as he could and as well as he could. But neither did he go out and meet the persecuting forces and stand up and say, I am a Christian and here, I'm, here I stand and what are you going to do about it? But um, he waited until, you know, this is a case that's fairly unusual because he was a really high profile person where the authorities would actually keep looking for him. You know, most rank and file Christians would just not merit the resources of the Roman Empire to send, you know, soldiers after them and pay, after them and pay those soldiers to go from city to city to try and find this person. Um, but eventually when Polycarp was captured, he stood up in a very moving um, portrayal. This is actually uh, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp as well with reading it. Very, um, very emotionally um, well-written uh, piece that captures the, the joy that Polycarp has in what's going to come to him after this, but the fear, of course, that he has of pain and suffering um, that will come before it and his resolution to meet what fate Christ brings toward him. So what do you think are some of the um, strengths and weaknesses of these different approaches to martyrdom that are displayed by these three characters here? We talked a little bit before about how much fear is being inspired by Pliny's letter and the, the situations that talks about. Um, so what do you guys, what, what do you guys think is appropriate for for regular Christians, for pastors, um, are they, should they be held to the same standards or different ones? Preston. The pastors should get a free pass. <laughs> 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 I So, would all three of these share a posture towards the Roman government that would, well, more or less affirm Christ's statement, you know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's? Would even Ignatius have acknowledged this idea that there was an instituted government of Rome under God's hand, or had Rome to Ignatius, for instance, over against, say, Polycarp or someone else, would he have viewed Rome as truly sort of the enemy of God? Uh, I mean, how, how are they interacting with that, that idea of... Uh, I would say that even Ignatius doesn't say that Rome is 
um, evil and is to be resisted at all costs. One thing he does not ask for, for example, is for um, people from these various churches to bring him out of jail. He doesn't say, use force because this is an unlawfully instituted governing body that needs to be uh, revolted against. He doesn't take that part, he, um, but he does have a very low view of Roman authority in terms of its spiritual authority. You know, he thinks they have authority over my body and they can make this happen to me, but it will be for the glory of God. It seems like somewhat related to personality also. Like I don't know if there's one right way for everybody. And, and be, I don't know, it seems very personality related. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of calling. Clearly they were all passionate to some level and just like all of us have different callings. I think some of us are called to maybe through personality, um, like Molly was saying, but some of us might be called to just have more of this aggression personality. Um, and I think that there's probably a place for all of it, uh, ultimately to bring glory to God. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're reading about all three of them. They've clearly made a, a mark in the history of the church for a reason. Yeah. And so part of me kind of wonders, as, as we consider these three, of what part of the what part of the Bible have they been reading that has been forming their posture? You know, because I think if you look at them, you, you can see there's biblical warrant. I think for depending on the context, mm-hmm. depending on what you've been reading, that would affirm their their position and how they're gonna, their posture towards Rome. So that, you know, it's kind of hard to say. I think to be very concrete, but trying to find out what's what's influencing. Mm-hmm. We know that Ignatius was reading Paul. Um, you can get quite a few echoes of Pauline language. Um, it's unlikely that he had copies of Paul's letters with him while he was uh, traveling because he doesn't quote Paul exactly. He can paraphrase. And Polycarp, who was writing a bit later, um, seems to have ac- had access to more of the epistles and maybe one or two of the gospels. Um, it's a little bit tough because we have so much less of his writing to, to say exactly what he's reading. And Eusebius, of course, had access to the New Testament, we know it. I see it quite a bit later. What do you think about the pastoral question? Um, what duty does uh, a pastor in this situation have to his congregation? One, one aspect would be, well, you need to stay alive in order to keep ministering. The other one would be, you need to be an example. Um, is this, should this, how, how should that play out? Yeah? Well, I think we, in many ways, Almost each one of these, you know, sometimes he fled and they let him out in the basket. Um, you know, sometimes he was in jail and waiting. And then there's also his appeal to Rome where it's almost like he's aggressive and he's like, I know this is, I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. I'm facing this. I'm called to die for the gospel. And, um, and you know, and Paul was an apostle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're models for, for all three approaches dependent on upon circumstances, I think, which is a, a, a great thing to highlight here. Yes, that's, I think that's a great observation. Um, it seems as earlier that we are temptations to say, well, there's some people called this, some people called that, some people called this. We can take another approach, which is one of the issues of which is to say that circumstances to some degree on the ground, I mean, what's to say that Polycarp would not have handled himself in a manner very similar to Ignatius? If he were doing, you know, if he were reading the circumstances 
that measure for vision. So there is a sense in which I don't know that we can say that any of us are called to one or the other, but also that there's a sense in which determining the situation, all three may be somewhat appropriate. I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, I have no real social basis, but I don't know, I don't know, maybe you know, but have they indoctrinated these three approaches? In other words, you, you sort of anecdotally said, here's what they did, mm -hmm. but is there a substantive argument uh, that would be universalized by any of these, these guys that we're aware of, just saying, here's the proper way to do it? No. Yeah. Um, there's nothing I'm aware of, which is one of the reasons why we still have these questions. Um, because, of course, persecution within the Roman Empire ends definitively um, in the early 4th century and doesn't come back. But it has continued throughout 20 centuries of church history in other parts of the globe, and Christians are constantly facing these circumstances, um, sometimes under very different forms of government that have very different visions of the way that the world should be run, and so different aspects of um, Christian theology come into conflict with it, but the universality of Christ and the unwillingness to compromise on that point, um, on Christ as being the sole means of salvation, continually comes back throughout church history as being the point where Christians have to take a stand against the world, um, whatever form of government is uh, instituting persecution at a given time that always comes back to be the point um, where no compromise can really be made. So what we see in each of these three anecdotes that I've put together is that none of these people gave in. Um, we will look in a few weeks' time at the pastoral and theological problems that were raised when people did start to give in in large numbers and at the same time that other people were not and what would happen when a wave of persecution would end. Because um, one thing that I do want you to take away from this is the idea that we saw a little bit of in Pliny is that this is not a systematic, empire-wide, continual implementation of a, of a universal policy. Persecution of Christians in the um, Roman Empire was severe but sporadic and localized up until the very end. It was only um, the last and greatest persecution that was um, in any sense universalized, and even that one didn't, uh, lasted only 10 years and there were breaks within it. So Christians might reasonably expect to not have to deal with this for most of their lives, but it was frequent enough and severe enough that they could be fearful that in, you know, a Christian might say, in my lifetime or in my child's lifetime, this is going to come back again. And we need to plan our lives with that possibility in mind. Nobody up until the time of Constantine could rest assured and say, um, being a Christian will never um, cause me to lose my life um, in, you know, in, in the reasonable expectation of another 40 years on earth or 50 years victory. Um, there was always that fear for the first three centuries. So just our last um, couple of minutes here, I would like to introduce you to someone who started to talk back to Romans on their own terms and try and convince uh, the Romans that Christianity was indeed something that um, could coexist in their society. And this is a man named Justin Martyr. Martyr's not his last name, it's just how he's been, uh, come to be known as because he was in fact martyred also in the mid-second century. And the difference between Justin Martyr and all the earlier Christian writers that we have is that Justin was a professionally trained philosopher. And he actually 
that time, at least according to his um, own remarks about his lifetime, in um, training in the, each of the philosophical schools that Junius mentioned uh, last week. So he actually got ran the full gamut. He, he wasn't satisfied with one thing, but he kept moving um, from one to another. His last one before Christianity was Platonism, and then from there he had a conversion experience toward Christianity. But what he did not do was turn around and say, everything that I learned is worthless before this, and now Christianity is the only thing. What he tried to do was incorporate two of them. And one of the ways that he did that was by speaking of Christianity in terms of the true philosophy. So he wrote two um, treatises called Apologies. One of them addressed to a mid-second century Roman emperor. The other one addressed to the Roman Senate. Whether or not they were actually read by the emperor or before the Senate is um, sort of up for grabs. It was kind of a literary convention to say that I, as a philosopher, am giving my advice to the governing powers that be, and hopefully they take it. So we don't know, but it has been preserved within the church for the last 2,000 years. And he argued that uh, Plato must have read Moses. Plato must have read the Torah, because there are things in um, Platonism that are very much in line with um, the ideals of Christianity, and I'll allow uh, Junius, when he's talking about these philosophical interactions, to give you some more details on that, but I want to talk about the social and historical context of this, which is that he is someone who is trying to bring these two worlds culturally together, and he is preaching this, he is writing this, and um, he has a very complex ideas about Christ as logos, the word, uh, Jesus as the word, as he is in the Gospel according to John, and that uh, the seeds of truth are in all men, whether they are Christian or not, and that, that uh, Christianity uh, delivers uh, the whole truth by, by means of Christ to human beings and delivers them from the power of demons. On the other side of things, he also uh, felt compelled to issue writings um, that were in dialogue with Judaism, um, whether or not they were actually, he, he uh, writes as though he were in dialogue with the Jew named Trypho, whether or not this person actually existed or simply a construct is also up in the air. But uh, he had two directions to go. He had to convince Romans on the one side, who were pagan and thought of Christianity in a certain way. And he had to work with um, Jews who had not converted to Christianity and argue from the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy for in favor of Christ. And Justin has remained within the what we would call the fold of Orthodox Christianity. Which we, we read him today, we read him as uh, a, a fellow brother in Christ. and. We recognize that there were real merits to the project, uh, the kind of intellectual, not exactly compromise, but the, the, the intellectual um, project of bringing disparate traditions together and allowing <coughs> them to see one another for what they really were. He, was, he would argue against things like the sensational charges against Christianity that we talked about at the beginning of the section and um, try and bring um, these two worldviews into some kind of a harmony to, to tell Roman people and people um, drenched in the philosophy of the ancient Mediterranean that, no, there are good things here, but this is the next step. This is the fulfillment, and this is not something so radically different that you have to turn your back on everything that you were before in order to become what we are as Christians. And the difference, um, but of course, is, is clear in his name. He did not <laughs> make it, uh, the, this project wasn't completed, certainly not in his lifetime. This and according to the Roman authorities, he was not one of them. And when it came down to making him choose between the two, he chose Christ and would go for it. 
this project, though, does not go away, and in fact is attempted by many um, later Christian theologians who we consider um, brothers and sisters in Christ later, but it's also taken up by another group of people uh, that we've called Gnostics, who instead of trying to reconcile and call the Greek philosophy and Roman worldview a stepping stone toward Christianity, actually mixed the two inextricably and decided that um, Christ could be a part of a Roman worldview without necessarily being the uh, same kind of universal savior that Orthodox Christianity insists on. And that project was um, one of the most severe internal struggles that Christianity had to face in this period. What we've been talking about today is pressure on Christianity from without, um, and Junius is going to talk about Christianity um, as being divided within itself and struggling for its own sense of identity. You have one group of people saying, we are Christians and we believe these things. Another group saying, we are Christians and we believe these other things and they are in conflict with one another. What do you do then? So thanks very much for um, bearing with me. I'd like to uh, just close this in a quick prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this group of people that are willing to come here, Lord, and to learn. I thank you, Lord, for giving me the resources and the chance to explore this knowledge on a professional basis for a while now, Lord, and the, for having the venue in which I've been uh, supported and encouraged to to share these things, Lord. And I pray for our Lord's day and for the coming service and our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.